welcome back to Feature Presentation. My name is Patrick. My name is Taylor. And this is the show that we do whenever we feel like doing it, whenever we have something to talk about. And this is the series that we do on the show when we just have random stuff to talk about. Mostly after we fly. <laughs> yes, we have lots of time to just do nothing but watch movies on planes. So we've got some plane movies for you, some other stuff. This is, of course, the flagship podcast at FeaturePresentationVideo.com. We talk about a wide variety of stuff over there. Uh, old stuff, new stuff, film, television, pop culture, history. This show's just kind of the conglomerate of all that. It's just what have we been watching? Some old stuff, some new stuff, some stuff on planes, some stuff at home, some stuff in theaters. Um, it's just kind of the, the mismatch show. The catch-all. Sure, that's a, that's a better way to put it. Yes, so I'm excited to get into this. We've been watching some interesting things. So interestingly enough, we kind of have like two subsets of our episode here. We have our Bradley Cooper 2012 double feature, which was a complete accident. And then we have a handful of 2023 movies to talk about. And we have a Ryan Gosling double feature. Oh, wait, actually, no, we're not talking about um, Crazy Stupid Love, but we did watch that. We did watch that uh, around the same time, and Taylor's going to write about it in her rom-com column coming to the website soon. No, but believe it or not, it's a Bradley Cooper double. <laughs> we're going to start with The Place Beyond the Pines, because this is a movie that we started on, on an airplane, and then... Couldn't finish because we ran out of time, believe it or not, uh, even though the movie is long. Uh, we ran out of time and had to finish it a couple days later. And that's like sort of the movie to do it with because it's split into two parts. But it's also not the movie to do it with because it just kind of lost like all of its momentum when we did that. Yeah, I have to be honest, like not... I, if I could go back in time, I would have just, like, not started that movie on the plane because I really think it's a movie that you need to watch in one sitting. And I say that because, listen, it is just, you know, spoilers, obviously, for this entire episode. Um, is it, hold on. I guess we should, we should hash this out live. Is it spoilers for five random movies? I feel like we should try our best to do non-spoiler talk. Because, like, what if you've seen The Place Beyond the Pines but you haven't seen Saltburn yet? Okay, fair enough. All right. Okay, no spoilers. <laughs> um, well, then I can't really explain so why. So then Schmai and Schmossling. When <laughs> I, so I, I, well, I can't really say, like, why I feel the way I do about it needing to be in one sitting then. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that this movie is split up into two parts. I feel like it's been ten years. We can at least say that much. Um, there are lots of. Uh, movies that do this we were when we watched the movie waves our friend said oh it's like the place beyond the pines where something happens about halfway through the movie and then starts to follow new characters um there's like a time jump and stuff and so you've basically got you've got a ryan gosling story and you've got a bradley cooper story and the ryan gosling story is significantly better than the bradley cooper yes. story and the bradley cooper story isn't even the bradley cooper story it's like the Bradley Cooper story and a, some kids' stories. Yeah. You know, I – listen. I'll just say it. I'll just say it. I think both these guys are goobers, okay? They, they give the goober performances. We talk about this many times on many different shows. Andrew Garfield is a goober. Austin Butler is a goober. These guys are first ballot Hall of Fame goobers, okay? Ryan Gosling is a goober. He knows this. He is self-aware. 
he plays to that strength in Barbie. And that's why he crushed it and created an iconic character. Bradley Cooper does not know this. He has absolutely no idea that he's a goober and, in fact, thinks probably the exact opposite of himself. And that is a problem for this movie. Yeah, you know, the reason that I say it's just not a movie to watch at two separate times, even though, like, maybe that makes sense on paper as, like, why you could do it, is just because when I picked this up the second time, you know, after that midway point, it was significantly worse. And when I went to go think about, hmm, what are my thoughts on this entire movie, my recency bias was to the bad parts. I feel like you need to be, like, oh, well, at least it was really, really good, like, an hour ago. Like, I think you need that solace. And, like, the first hour is really, really good. Yeah, it's, like, a master class in, like, tension, great chemistry between Ryan Gosling and Ava Mendez. Obviously, this sparked their marriage um, and relationship. Um, you've got Ben Mendelsohn. You've got Mahershala Ali. There's, like, a really great um, – uh, at a certain point, Ray Liotta comes into the first half of this movie. Yeah. No, no, he's in the second half. But, like, he, he's – He's before the time jump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's really, really solid that first that first hour or so. Um, but it just loses momentum like nobody's business. I feel like the first part of Bradley's story is like fine. It's not nearly as good, but it's like serviceable. It's like we're ge- okay. I I guess what we should say is like. We normally try and do at least like two sentence plot synopses for this, but I don't think that you really can without spoiling anything. So like, it's a movie that follows two different guys. It's split into two parts. They cross cross paths at at, at one point. I don't really know what more you could say. I know that's like so extremely vague. Any of that could mean anything, but if if I told you like who either one of these guys was, it would give away who the other guy was. It would give away plots and stuff. Yeah, it just. For me, the in terms of timeline, which I'm not I'm gonna not try and try and not spoil anything, it's like Ryan Gosling's story, and then Bradley Cooper's story picks up immediately, and then separately in the middle of Bradley Cooper's story, there's a 15 year time jump, and they follow kids, and that the kid stuff sucks. It is so <laughs> bad. Oh my god, it's so bad, and so it just gets worse and worse and worse. I think there are two good Goslings. I think that there's completely silent, like almost never speaks. That's him in this, and that's him in Drive. And I, feel I don't like, feel like he never speaks in this. Um, he's mysterious. How about yeah. that? He never speaks in Drive. I've never seen Drive, but I take. The I want to say that there's another one, but maybe not. And then there's I know that I'm a goober. I'm going to play to that. We saw that in Crazy Stupid Love. We see that in Barbie. You know, whatever. Notebook, even. Yeah, a certain degree, yeah. Um, he re- He's a kid in this, but he really plays it up in Remember the Titans. Like, he's very silly. He's having fun. Bradley Cooper, not only does the, the story begin to follow him, and we're going to talk about him again in a second, Silver Lightning's Playbook, he, he has this reputation, especially now, around all the maestro stuff. People were giving him some crap a couple years ago during Star is Born. He's really rightfully earned. He's really getting it now from Maestro, where people are saying, "God, this guy just wants to win a freaking Oscar, huh?" And like at a certain point, that becomes, I think, sort of lazy criticism. Like we've been saying this about the guy for a decade. Like 
maybe he just wants to do really good work and like maybe he just takes the work really seriously and he wants to get it right and he wants to study and he wants to choose good scripts like it's also hard to say that about something like Maestro, which is biographical. Like, you should have that care going into any biography. Right. Like, that doesn't mean it's Oscar bait. You just need to have that care and tactfulness. But then you watch this and Silver Linings Playbook, and then you go like, and then like two years later, he did The Elephant Man on Broadway. He's trying to get his EGOT. And then the acting thing wasn't enough, and he started doing the directing thing. You got to start to go like, is there something to this criticism? Is is he just is he just reaching for the stars all the time? Maybe I think that that's possible. <laughs> um, and this feels like kind of the beginning of that, right? Yeah, I think that that's fair. I I don't dislike Bradley Cooper, but I feel like I he's kind of soured me in some ways over the years. Um, I don't know where that souring began. It's just. I feel like he always just, like, misses the mark a little bit. Yeah. And that's just kind of grating. Yeah. Uh, and I know that that's a really poor criticism because, like, oh, well, if he's consistently only missing the mark a little bit, then that must mean he's good. And, yeah, he is good. I'm not going to sit here and say that Bradley Cooper isn't a good actor. He is a good actor. But there's just something that's a little off. What was that TV show he was in? Chef or something? Oh, he was in the the no. Uh, it wasn't a, a no kitchen reservation. confidential. Yeah, yeah. It was a kitchen confidential. Yeah, where he played like Jack Bourdain was his character's name. Oh, that was awful. So like he was do you know he does and when you look at the filmography you go like well yeah he did Wedding Crashers and all about Steve and all about Steve and Midnight Meat Train and The Hangover and Valentine's Day and Eighteen. He was just a schmuck, and we were all cool with him being a schmuck, right? And then one day it's like, uh, plays beyond the pond. David pines. O. Russell got his hands on him. <laughs> Silver Lang's playbook, American Hustle, American Sniper, um, Burnt Sucked, Joy. Um, he does a bunch of voices. And then it's like, that's not working. Star is born. Uh, uh, Maestro, obviously he's doing a lot of Marvel voices in that time, and he uh, very memorable scene in Licorice Pizza. But it definitely, like, you go like, uh, we, we make this joke for a reason. <laughs> Yeah. And this is this is that turning point, I think. Yeah, so, I don't know. I feel like this, I'm glad that I saw this movie because it's one of those that's just been perpetually on my watch list, yeah. like, since I've known what movies are, essentially. I, I've had a letterbox for, like, four years now, and I think it was, like, my sixth oldest film on my watch list. So, like, it's been there forever. Yeah, so I just feel like, I don't even think I had it on my actual Letterboxd watch list because it was just so mentally ingrained. Like, yeah, I just want to see it at some point. Um, I, I, I didn't dislike the movie. It's just... The first it, half yeah, is great. The first half is so good. It is, yeah. like, actually unbelievably good. And despite Ryan Gosling being kind of a goober, and he really does play to his strengths here. Like, he's very Gabby. He's very mysterious. He's very over-the-top. Like, he... I don't want to make it sound like when I say he's leaning into that gooberiness that it's like a, a dismissive or a criticism. I think it it works well for him. I like when he does that. I think it is a genuine strength of his. Uh, the nice guys is another one where he um, he plays into that. And then for me, now you're gonna yell at me. You do the La La Land. Oh no, I agree. That's a goober performance, and, but I do like it. And I don't know if he knows that he's doing the goober thing there. And I think that's where it gets a little. Sure. I, I do think he's self-aware in his gooberness. I really do. Yeah. Even in La La Land. He's refined it. 
<laughs> refined it, okay? He's a refined goob. He is. Um, Andrew Garfield's a refined goob. He's a no. He's I don't a think so. Tony winning refined. I don't goob. think he's refined. <laughs> I think and you want to talk about Did someone. He win the Tony? You want to talk about someone who has no idea they're a goober? Andrew Garfield has no earthly clue. There is <laughs> I not. Think he does. No, there is nothing going on in that pretty little head of his. I mean, like absolutely nothing. I think he does. No, I'm sorry. He I mean, just um, the war movie would beg to differ, but what was that? What was that movie? <sighs> Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw. And he's such a goober in that. A peak goober, if you will. Um, he did win the goober. Anyways. I say all this to say, I did like Place Beyond the Pines. But I do just have this really intense recency bias of the last part of the film being so bad. Do you think it would be just be bad regardless? Like... I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to sit through it and watch it again to find out. No. But the first part is so good, and I would say worth the watch. Like, it is, the movie is worth seeing for the first part. Try to get bored, turn it off. But Yeah. Know, yeah, the first part's pretty good. Yeah, it is. I also think that Silver Linings Playbook played a part in my Bradley Cooper allergy. Because when Silver Linings Playbook came out, I was in love with that movie. I probably would have called it one of my favorite movies of all time. Same. And then I, and now I go, oh my god! Like I was a preteen or a teen, and like how embarrassing because this movie sucks. Talk about a movie that does not hold <laughs> up. Oh my gosh! Here's what I will say. It's crazy how bad this movie. <laughs> Bradley Cooper's commitment and what do i say like his commitment and his craft is honorable here i think he is giving this performance his all and i think he is completely and utterly successful in that and i mean that but it is written like garbage for him i think he sells the hell out of it but there is so much wrong with the bones there is so much wrong with the bones and so he is selling it but to what end i think maybe we're getting to something here I, i'm wondering if because he has a, a theater background theater training does he really yes he went to um the actor studio i wonder if he's a better stage actor than a film actor because although we haven't seen him live on stage he's giving a stagey performance in silver linings playbook it is very theatrical he's giving a theatrical performance in uh licorice pizza he's giving a theatrical performance behind that microphone for rocket raccoon i mean even um uh wet hot american summer he's a baby there but yeah. you can see an understanding of comedic beats and, and in a collaboration and an ensembleness to it and i'm wondering if it's just like when he broods that we find that unattractive yeah i mean not to say that you can't brood in, in on stage you can absolutely but film really but nobody is the wants to watch exactly that. exactly you don't watch those shows or like you're you know I, I don't know how to say it it just film really is the medium for brooding and i always kind of find it somewhat unappealing unless you really really make a strong campaign for it which most films unless do not. you're like marlon brando i just think i think a lot of films think that brooding is its own art and i do not think that it is i think that they think a lot of filmmakers think that that is brooding is just interesting enough that you can just let that be but life is 
you brewed in life. Like, I don't need to see yeah. that recreated over and over it's a thousand acting. times. It's not, yeah, exactly. It's not, it's not acting. It's, you know, I don't know. And so I feel like the stage people kind of get that. In fact, I feel like when people brood, it's often the butt of some joke or it is, you know, acknowledged as, as a joke in some way, or it is played up, you know, extravagantly to, to kind of acknowledge that, um, you know, the irony or what, or what have you. But, um, yeah, I think that I think that the brooding doesn't work for him. So he, this one we can give the basic plot. So Bradley Cooper plays Pat, who recently experienced a mental health crisis after walking in on his wife cheating on him with his coworker, with their coworker. Right, she works at the school too. Yes, and um, has now gotten out of the court-appointed hospital stay and is back at home, but is not taking his medication and is trying to f- get in contact with his ex-wife and he's kind of just... He wants her back. He wants her back and he's trying to improve his life while finding that a very difficult thing to do. Um, he meets Jennifer Lawrence who also has her own things going on in her life. Her, her husband recently died. Um, she's a very young widow and they kind of find... Um, each other interesting for those various reasons yes something that i will say falls very short here and i actually saw someone do a deep dive on this in on tiktok so i can't take full credit for this idea popping into my brain but i do think like once i saw the videos like oh yeah i did i did feel that way watching it um jennifer lawrence's character is also supposed to be in her late 30s the same as bradley cooper's character in terms of the book and Jennifer Lawrence is 22 years old here, and boy, does she's she like look at... she's like 20. It. I don't no, even... No, I think it's 22. I'm pretty positive it's 22. And she looks boy, like a child. She, look at... she, she filmed this video while still playing a, a teenager in Hunger Games. She's still filming Hunger Games movies at this point and is effectively being a teenager. And I she's just... Got, she's got chubby little kid cheeks. She has little, a baby face, though. Yeah. Yeah. And so I do feel and like... And when we saw this movie when we were 14... I say we as, as we watched it together and knew each other at the time. But I remember being like, oh, my God, she's so grown up. Yeah. Like, I know that she's only whatever X amount of years older than me. Because you did the math and you were wondering if it was legal. Single digit years older than me, you know. But I remember being like, oh, wow, I'm that close to being an adult. And now I'm older than she was at the time. And I go, she's a fucking child in this movie. She's a child and I have to say, like, I'm not I'm not going to say, like, she did not give this performance her all. Obviously, she did. She she's won- the one that won the Oscar. Yeah, she's the one that won the Oscar, obviously. <laughs> However, this character, it, it doesn't, there is not enough justification for how jaded this character is and how mentally unwell this character is if you have not lived a life that has been difficult. If you were married for three years in a seemingly perfect, happy marriage, I'm not saying that grief is not a bitch. It is. It, it's incredibly difficult to navigate through. But this character has a level of brooding, to go back to that, and and jadedness that I feel like you get through time. And baby-faced Jennifer Lawrence at 22 years old does not make that mental connection for you. And the script doesn't do you any favors, so it's hard to make that leap. This would make more sense if it was someone like, um, I don't know, like 
like Rachel Weiss or something. I don't know, like someone someone similar to Bradley Cooper's age because they would have more to connect on. It's almost predatory when you see him play against her like this. Yeah, I, at the time I didn't I didn't know at all because I was a kid, and like all adult all adults are the same age. Yeah, and you're like there's a huge age gap between these two. Yeah, and it's and it does not make sense in yeah. terms of the source material at all. Um, it's you know, directed like a nightmare. I mean, yeah. it's truly, it's written like a nightmare. I couldn't believe some of the shit that came out of their mouths. The guy's got the worst therapist I've ever seen. Um, he gets some of the monologue stuff that he gets is good, and he and he plays it well. I, I and feel some like of the quips are good. Yes, but the the structure and a lot of the just dialogue, just like the back and forth, back and forth. That shit, I was like, how was this the final draft? And we, no, but like, we all liked it at the time. Yeah. She won the Oscar. They, all four of them got nominated. I mean, like, that's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's really tough because there are good moments in here. Robert De Niro is in this movie. (laughs) Giving, like, really one of his last, like, full able body performances. I don't mean that in a negative way. He's an old man now. He's gotten old. He's been acting for a very long time. He does a lot of standing still. And he does a lot of just getting his paycheck. Right. Like, and I get it. I would do. He's paid to be Robert De Niro yes. now. He is yes. not paid to be a character played by Robert De Niro. But but this, he's jogging. Yeah. You know, he's running up to the house. He he's getting into fights with Bradley Cooper. Like, he's still, he's still able to do everything. It's like, that's a great part of this movie. Yeah. I think, like, I love, I do, like, some, like one moment that I think is really great in this is, like, when, you know, Bradley Cooper is so obviously going through a mental health crisis, but he loves to point out other people's things. It's very, you know, pot calling the kettle black. But it's also like, um, it's also like, I, I don't know how it's to describe inaccurate. it. It's what we yeah. thought mental health was in 2012. Yes. And, you know, I think the movie we looked up, it takes place in t- 2008 because it's um, Sean Jackson's um, rookie season. That's, like, it's very, like, 2008, like, oh, I'm crazy. Like, she even has a bit where she goes, like, I'm crazy in the diner. Yeah, because, like, being crazy, quote-unquote, is, like, enough and, like, compelling, and it is not anymore. (laughs) Um, It's weak, though. Yeah, it is very weak. And so, like, there is a a funny bit that I actually think stands, stands the test of time, and I think it is still funny, and I think it is still effective in what it is accomplishing in terms of moving the plot forward, where... Robert De Niro is, like, riddled with superstitions. Like, he is ungodly superstitious about the Eagles, and he has all of these interesting quirks about how they win. He has to rub a certain napkin or a handkerchief. He has to have his remotes all laid out and facing the TV. Bradley Cooper needs to be there with him. And, it's, and wearing a specific yes. jersey. And it is funny when when Bradley Cooper is in the middle of this mental health crisis where his dad is rubbing the napkin and he goes like, what are you rubbing that for? And he's like, I'm just, I'm just rubbing, it's just a handkerchief. And he goes, that's OCD. And he goes, no, like that's funny. <laughs> that is funny because it's, it's pot calling the kettle black, like set up punchline, bada bing. But like those moments do not solve yeah. major yeah. issues. You said yourself, well, why does have this movie take place in the middle of the street? Oh my God. Yeah. My letterbox review, <laughs> which if you're not following me on letterbox, you should, uh, my handle's Taylor Malone. Um, 
so much of this movie, like an actually indescribable amount. I was thinking, of this there's movie. like six or seven scenes that take place yes. in the middle of the street. In the middle of the street, and and it's funny because we finished Place Beyond the Pines right after this, and I will say, at the end of Place Beyond the Pines, there is a moment in which someone rides a bike down an empty road. And I was like, that's how you do it. You get one. You have established <laughs> that you are in the middle of nowhere. So yeah. you know, you are, you, the mental leap to say there are no cars around is not much. You are in Philadelphia. <laughs> you are in Philadelphia. Okay. Yeah. And there's no cars to be seen in the entire city. You can go anywhere in the city, downtown, in a suburb, whatever. No cars to be seen. They spend in, like, prolonged periods of time. Runs in the middle of the street. Okay, sure, runners can be assholes sometimes and, and think the road is theirs, I guess. They exclusively run in the middle of the street, like, a zillion times. Longingly kissing in the middle of the street. You know, standing and getting into fights in the middle of the street. It's just, like, wh- are people not honking? Yeah. Are people not, like, dude, move. Right. It's so weird. It is so lazy. It is so, like... Ooh, look at me. I can create a cinematic moment. Like, that's so <laughs> embarrassing. And there's enough stuff in the script. I'm I'm reading a book right now that was written in like the mid nineties and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna call this book out, but when the author writes about women, he writes about them in one of two ways. He says like she was really slender and he talks about her legs and her long hair. Or he says, She was kinda fat. And that's, like, I'm not exaggerating. Like, that's what he says. And it feels very, like, I guess that was okay to write in a book in the mid-'90s. Those were the two types of women. And this feels that same way about, like, well, I guess this was okay to say about mental health in the mid-2000s or late-2000s, whatever. It was just, like, oh, like, crazy people just scream in the street. Oh, okay, sure. But I also feel like I remember people being, like, Wow! Finally, a movie where that tackles grief right. So I'm not even I'm not even like really judging the movie. It's just now it's like it's egregious. Yeah, and so it's just like it's aged like milk. Really, I mean, I think that there were problems that we were all kind of like rose tinted glasses. Like we we couldn't quite see them then because again, any stride forward feels like a huge leap. Talking about mental health at all, a man's mental health at all, yes. a man dealing with things, and they, he does they have very realistic like sort of um uh uh anxieties that manifest like there's a lot there that does work there are a lot of great moments there's a there's the infamous dance scene and when everyone reacts to the dance scene we literally turn each other and went that moment still works yeah you know there's a lot of it that does but there's really the a lot of the themes a lot of the bigger stuff has really just like soured the rest of it i i'm not going to reread the book we have it because I read it when it came out and in preparation for this movie. I will not reread the book. However, I would be interested to. I'm not gonna, but I would be interested to and see how that kind of compares today. All right, let's talk about our 2023 movies. I want to start with a documentary. We kind of considered doing this on Why Two Kids. That's the show where we talk about pop culture from the late 90s, early 2000s. You can find that on PeachTreeStationVideo.com. I'm, I'm glad we did because I don't really think it's a full episode movie. Um, but I do feel like it's it's worthy of, of being touched on, and that is uh, David Holmes' The Boy Who Lived. It is a documentary about a man named David Holmes who was Daniel Radcliffe's stunt double on the Harry Potter films. And right before filming 
Harry Potter 7 Part 1, he um, had an accident in a rehearsal and uh, became paralyzed. He was paralyzed from the neck down. And it's about his life as a stuntman and living life wild, crazy, and free. His life now. Um, and uh, and it's – I don't want to say it's told through the lens of Daniel Radcliffe because that's not true. But I, what I think it is is Daniel Radcliffe is buddies with this guy. He really is buddies in real life and um, has some money and has some pull with Warner Brothers and said, I want to make this movie. I think it's it's a valuable story to be told. So you get a lot of Daniel Radcliffe in it because he's the reason the movie got made, if we're being honest. But I think it's a really touching portrait of a man who has experienced, you know, really the worst possible thing a guy like him could experience, um, but has, like, taken it the best he can. And I, th- I think it's really an uplifting story, believe it or not. I think this is a, a really excellent film. I, I, I truly will go as far to say, I think this is an excellent, excellent film. Um, not only is it just on paper extremely touching and heartwarming, but there is an earnestness that runs deep with this film that you do not get from every passion project or every documentary. Daniel says at the end of, of the documentaries, and I'm paraphrasing here, something along the lines of, you know, Harry Potter means so much to so many people, and I'm so grateful for that. But when I think of Harry Potter, this is the story that's important to me. It's not the narrative. It's not what was in the books. This is the story that is most important to me. And I think that that is like the perfect thesis for this film because you feel that completely through that. It, yes, it is, a, it is a rise and fall story. It is on paper just interesting. It is interesting to see a guy who is like the definition of like off the walls, um, you know, like bouncing off the walls, high energy, high spirited. He's like a ridiculously up. talented gymnast. Yeah, he, you know, just like physical specimen, like peak physical form. And then you have this immediate flip. Like that is an interesting process to watch. Watch. But they do it with really an unbelievable amount of skill and, and tactfulness. And, um, you know, David Holmes is so generous here. He really gives people – he doesn't just tell the story, but he really takes you there. And he's, he's just very generous with his thoughts and his feelings. And Daniel Radcliffe is very generous with his thoughts and his feelings. And every talking head is very meaningful. And it just feels like – there are every single person who worked on this film like this was not about the film this was about a release this was about a coming to terms this was a battle of grief they needed to tell this story because i think so many of them struggle with so many emotions tied to this story and this was a way for them to creatively collaborate on something that that means something um it it really is just excellent um and I, I have to say, like, I don't feel like we talk about stunt doubles enough. I don't feel like there is enough on them. Uh, why aren't there more documentaries? Why aren't there more? Stunt doubles, I mean, that's a crazy job. Well, I think part of it is it's, it's the same thing for, like. Like magic. I feel like that's well, ruining the bit, you know. I, what I was really going to say is uh, this is said a lot about Major League Baseball umpires. If a Major League Baseball umpire is really good, you never think about him. You don't know his name. If he calls a perfect game, you didn't even notice. 
right? It's the guys that are bad that you know. And I wouldn't say that there are really stunt doubles that are bad. I don't think I've ever really been like, that was a stunt double of us. It was just, you know, low budget or something. That's like a director fault, right. too, to a certain right. extent. But I think that this is just like a, they're just supposed to be really good. And never and, get And credit. never get noticed. That's literally their job. And a lot of guys are like, they're totally okay with that. Like, you know, he talks about he was four or five years older than Daniel. Um, and Daniel was like 11 when, when but he was just little. Um, that David was just little, and so he was the same size as Daniel, despite being older. Um, that's one reason why he was such a great gymnast, you know. And <clears throat> so he's old enough to be like a big brother, set on his own, a big brother, able to do what he wants. He gets to just like take Daniel off the set, and they just like fart around, you know, and they they become friends through that. And he's you know fifteen or sixteen, whatever it was. But because he's just got this kind of personality, he's got the same energy as this 11-year-old, and they become really great friends. And he doubles him for every movie for a decade. And then... And even teaches Daniel how to be his own stunt person. Like, right. Daniel uh, Daniel did so many of his own stunts because David could see that Daniel was interested in them and wanted to do them themselves. And David never went, Daniel's going to put me out of a job. He just went like, he wants to do it, He would it, speak guys. up for him and be like, no, he can do this. Like, it's totally fine. He can totally do this. You yeah. Know? And, and would let him do it. And, you know, the, the directors and the producers would be like, oh, we're not so sure. And he'd be like, no, I know him. We work on these things. He can do this. And he's, he's an advocate for Daniel. Like, you don't think of, like, the stunt guy being an advocate for this huge actor. Um, but he was. And, and Daniel has clearly an immense amount of gratitude for that. And there's because it's Harry Potter. There's a ton of behind the scenes footage, and like there are moments where like he's like cowering behind some rocks. It's like pow pow pow. It's not a gun. Whatever magic thing is happening, and like the rocks are kind of exploding around him. And then he goes like, "Okay, Daniel, you do it now." And then Daniel does it. And I watching Daniel go like, "That's the shot that's in the movie. I recognize that motion, you know." Um, and and then when they get to the accident. They make it pretty clear that, like, it was human error, that this could have been avoided. It was not purely an accident. Um, but because he's just such a good-natured, warm-hearted guy, he says, like, yeah, you know, I tried the being pissed off thing. For, like, two days. He, sa he says, I tried it for, like, a week in the hospital. And then I was like, I just, I can't do it. I can't do it. It's no fun. I'm not getting anything out of it. So I just don't. I'm just not upset about it. But that doesn't mean that he's not sad. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have anxieties. That doesn't mean that a lot of his dreams were not taken away from him. And that's what's so interesting. This is, this is a, a, a is very a sweet man who's not bitter, but he's still a young man who feels as though, and they, they talk about how he has a very specific kind of paralysis. He has a very specific neck issue that only like 1% of, of people um, with paralysis have, and he's losing motor functions, he's losing body functions. It's essentially de degenerative. Right, and he, and he goes, like, I'm like I'm dying, basically, and, and it's all being taken away from me, and, like, that sucks. Like, he doesn't go, like, that's fine. His, you know, his good-naturedness ends at a certain point. I, I don't mean to say that at that point he becomes bitter, but I think that's where the human studies stuff is really interesting, is you go, like, you can be such a warm, kind-hearted person, and shit can still bother you, you know, and, and you can still be going through your own stuff. And I think that that's uh, part of the thesis of the documentary is 
people are incredibly complicated and you can have terrible things happen to you and find the light in those good things. And there are a lot of those stories are always stories of people who experience, you know, personal tragedy or natural disaster, whatever it is. And they, they learn some lesson from it and that's great. But that also means that it doesn't mean that it doesn't affect you anymore and that it doesn't didn't completely change who you are as a person. And I think that that's really interesting. Who, who is David before and after and how is how is he the same guy still? I think it's such a really, really interesting sort of character study. And he's a great guy for it. There's a reason why they want to make this documentary. He's funny. He's very charismatic. You're totally right. He's very generous with what he, he wants to talk Extremely about. Extremely vulnerable. They show, yeah, they show a lot of stuff that like I would be embarrassed, I think, maybe to put, put in the documentary. But I think he wants it to be an honest story. And, you know, he wants to show his frustrations and he wants to show the highs and lows of being in the hospital and the highs and lows of being at home with a caretaker um, and, you know, the highs and lows of his career. And I think that just that that kind of wave is really what makes the documentary so interesting. Yeah, I mean, he he speaks about his time as a stunt double with so much passion. He just says, like, it was the best job in the world. Like, there was... He no. says at one point, I would still be doing it if it was for the accident. Yeah, absolutely. He said, like, if, if my body started working tomorrow, I would go back to it tomorrow. And I, I think yeah. that that shows that kind of, like, commitment to that work. And, like, <clears throat> there there can only be so much bitterness when you would be willing to go do it again. Like, you just, like, loved it so much. And, um, yeah, he's just – he's so vulnerable. It is, like, a master class in, like – optimism but also like being in touch with your emotions enough to recognize that sometimes reality hits you and you can't be entirely optimistic it's just it's really so so touching and so good and um just totally worth the watch you can watch it on hbo max or max or whatever it's called and um you know uh, we don't need to get into the state of hollywood and the state of streamers but max likes to take stuff off and take stuff away, even stuff that they own. Um, and so, like, I don't know if it'll be on there forever. I'm not going to say it's going to leave tomorrow. It only dropped two weeks ago. But there's probably something in that contract about we have to give it two years on the platform. But I don't know if they're going to give it two years in one day or, what you know, whatever. So I would definitely, if it is available, watch it. I think it's definitely worth a watch, especially if you're a Harry Potter fan. I think that there's a lot of stuff in there that you just don't know um, and you should know. Yeah. Um, they talk to other stunt doubles, and so, like, it's also interesting to see, like, oh, who was Neville Longbottom's stunt double, and, you know, who was, um, you know, like, other another random person's stunt double. The guy who stepped in for David for the rest of the Potter films, and, like, how it yeah. affected that guy, because they were friends. That stuff's really interesting. Um, yeah, it's, it's all around a, a really great movie. The ending, I don't want to spoil the ending, but the endings are really, really touching. Um, yeah, it's got a lot going for it. Yeah, I, I just can't recommend it enough. Let's very briefly talk about a very silly film before um, before our final film of the show. We've had our puppy for one year now. We just celebrated one year the other day. And he is not one year. We we've got. Had we've had him. That's what I said. No, I know, but I'm just like, in case you, he is a rescue, in case you were curious or whatever, he is a year and a half, but we have had him for one year. In case you're curious, we are awesome. We did the right thing. We did oh, rescue him. That's not what I meant. No, I know. Um, but uh, we th- we thought we would um, celebrate by watching Strays, <laughs> which he loved. Which because we were in the we were at AMC and we saw the trailer for for the first time, and Taylor went, 
we are not going to watch that here. We're going to watch that at home with the dog. And I was like, okay, sure. So finally hit Peacock. The time came. Strays. It's a talking dog movie with Will Ferrell and Jamie Foxx. There of, are a lot of crude jokes. poop jokes yeah. and wiener jokes and and peeing on stuff jokes and, and humping, things humping jokes. jokes. It's all um, uh, scraping the bottom of the barrel stuff. But I just got a kick out of it. I don't know. It, it made me laugh. I think part of that is Will Ferrell, despite me kind of being over a lot of what he does, he's got the perfect voice for this. I think that's one reason why, like, Buddy the Elf is so um, so memorable is he just has the right quality to his voice to be, like, a, a silly guy, a goober, you know? And so even when he's his, his – voice is coming out of a dog it works he plays you know a dog who doesn't know that he's a stray and 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 finds that out and then finds out he gets to pee on stuff and home stuff and something about that just really works and there's enough in there that like i liked it it's not a very good movie i don't really know if i would recommend it for everyone no it's but the dog liked it I liked it. Yeah, if you don't know, we've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again here. Sunny loves watching movies. Like, we really did get the perfect dog because from the get-go, he has been the ultimate iPad baby. He loves watching TV. He recognizes, I don't know if this is every dog. I'm going to talk about my dog like he's the only dog in the world, so it doesn't matter. But he, like, can recognize shapes and sounds that I feel like no other dog picks up on. The other day, <laughs> yeah, sure. the other day we were driving past a vet. He's never been there before. He, you know, hasn't really seen this building a ton. And it had black silhouettes of dogs and cats, like, as, de- as decor out. And he was growling at them. And I was like, how do you know that's a dog? Like, there's no faces. It's not painted. It's just a black silhouette with, like, a tail. Like, how do you know that that's a dog? But he knows, and that very much translates to TV. He he will be sound asleep, and a dog will quietly walk past in the frame, and he is all ears, and he <laughs> is looking at it. He will get up. He'll go sniff the TV. Um, even when it's not animal-related, sometimes he will just sit down and watch a whole movie with us. He loves watching TV. I know that sounds so freaking silly, but he really, really does love it. And so I try and find movies that will keep his interest – and this did. He watched like the first half of it. Both of us did. And then we both fell asleep. And I kept watching and I liked it. Did you like what you saw? I did. I did. I thought the ending was really sweet. You woke up for the ending. It's got Will Forte kind of, you know, doing his Will Forte thing. He's got Jimmy Fox doing his Jimmy Fox thing. I'm not sure about all of it. In fact, I'm really not sure about most of it. But it caught me in the right mood. Um, I liked watching it with my dog. I thought some of the poop jokes were funny. It played well for me. Yeah, I feel like, you know, um, it was for him. It was for him, not for us. Yeah, sure. Um, and then our final movie is uh, is one of the hottest film conversations right now. It is uh, the new movie Saltburn, the Emerald Fennel movie with Jacob Elordi. And I, I don't know, I can't. Everyone pronounces it. I YouTubed it. Everyone pronounces his name differently. I'm going to go. What am I going to go with? Barry Coogan. I think it's Coogan. I don't know why the Irish would pronounce it any other way. I can't find him pronouncing it. People are like, Keoghan. That doesn't seem right to me. I don't know why. It, whatever. Maybe maybe that is it. I don't know. 
All right, we're just going to roll with Barry Coogan. Or we could just call him Barry. Barry. Bear. You know who we're talking about. The uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer, um, uh, 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 the Banshees of Inishirin, that guy. And if you've seen Saltburn, he's the guy that's really largely endowed. All right. Um, we're going to be careful the way that we talk about this movie. This is a, We definitely don't want to spoil this movie. This is a movie about the haves and the have-nots. This is a movie that commonly gets referred to as the untalented Mr. Ripley, which I think is really unfair because that movie is complicated, and I'm not still not sure how good that movie is either. Um, but it's uh, it follows Barry. He is a uh, an Oxford student who um, sees Jacob Elordi and sees Jacob Elordi's wealth, and and uh, I mean he's like part of like a dynasty. And sees his social status, and he wants that, and he does not have those things, and so he attaches himself to Jacob Elordi so that he can spend the summer at his mansion called Saltburn, and with his family, and just kind of weasel his way into their family, into their lives, and try and get some of the things that he does not have but desires, including but not limited to Jacob Elordi. And it's not ever, it's not a thing of like, oh, I just want money. It is very clear, and Jacob Elordi plays this perfectly, and I'm not even just like saying like, haha, Jacob Elordi's so hot. Like, you know, this was easy for him. I'm not saying this. I, I truly am being complimentary when I say Jacob Elordi plays this perfectly. His character is, you know, um, intoxicating to everyone around him. He has every single person around them spinning on an, on an axis that revolves around him. He is just um, a magnetic force. And so it's very easy to understand why on top of the, the having everything going for him and on top of the things that he can quote unquote, you know, or like, you know, hypothetically offer to other people, um, you just want to be around him anyways because he's just perfect. And, and we'll talk about Barry in a second. We'll also talk about Emerald Fennel because I have some thoughts there, but Jacob Elordi, I don't know too much about, and I feel like all of a sudden, just like, bam, he's everywhere. And we saw him in Priscilla, and we woke up Priscilla, and I went, what the fuck was that? What was he doing? I, I was just sort of uh, amazed that I didn't understand anything that he was doing in that movie and just felt, I, I don't know, I felt like, what am I missing here? And then I saw this, and he crushes in this. And... um. I talked recently, it's always easy to like make fun of an actor for bad accent work. And I think that that's often unfair because like just because you don't have the right ear for that kind of thing doesn't mean you can't be a good actor. Yeah, but we do need to stop, I feel like, putting people in roles that require a good oh, ear. If Benedict Cumberbatch has another southern accent, I'm going to jump out a window. But, you know, there's he crushes his his posh accent here oh my god and his the that, first five words that yeah. came out of his mouth you turned to me and he said is he british and i went no because <laughs> i thought he was australian yeah well yeah no he's australian and within the first five seconds it was so pitch perfect that i was like he nailed it we both and, turned to each other yeah. and audibly said in the theater oh he nailed it and, and we didn't need 20 sentences we needed five words to go like yeah and that's, that's so essential to his character and like the way his character chooses to present himself and the way that he was raised and stuff, it all comes through in the way that he speaks. So sometimes that's lazy to make fun of or sometimes that's lazy to praise even. Um, but when you get it right and it's important, 
important that it was it right. It's so effective. It's so effective, and he's so effective here, and he really, he really is great. Now, the this is a very divisive movie right now because people are saying it is the talented Mr. Ripley, and I don't think you've seen the talented Mr. Ripley. I, I've seen Purple Noon, but I have not seen the talented Mr. Ripley. Right. Yes. Yes. Of course. Um, very, very similar, right? But this is very much like if this exact movie was made 25, 30 years ago, whatever it's been now, I think you would cast Jude Law in the Jacob Elordi part. I think that you would cast Matt Damon in the in the Barry Coogan, Keoghan, Kagan part. I think that you would cast Gwyneth Paltrow as the sister. I see the connection. And there's also a have not weasels his way into the haves and 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 does sort of some unsavory things we, we're not going to spoil anything a lot of it's been spoiled by the cast themselves there's a moment i knew was coming because jacob already just gave it away in an interview um but if you know you know but i think that that movie is complicated too and i'm not sure how good that that movie really is either it really got me on the last watch but then the more i thought about it i was like i don't know this movie has some insane issues that we're going to talk about in a second that i just sort of couldn't believe and I thought Emerald Fennell's first film, Promising Young Woman, was a very good movie. I think that this is a very good movie also. I don't think it needs to be as divisive people have made it out to be. I think people have really just chosen to kind of shit on it and shit on her and her background when I think that she's making fun of herself and her world. And I don't think people are – I don't want to say people aren't getting that, but – I don't think people want think to get that. I, I think that they're getting it and, dis, and choosing to dismiss it. It's it's a, it's difficult to watch an Eat the Rich movie from a rich person, but I think that there's a self-awareness there, and I think that there's a, a, a parody there that is essential, and I think a lot of the thematic stuff works really well. Yeah. I You know, I think that this is a really strong movie. There is a lot that I didn't see coming. I was like – I was, like, actually thrilled the whole time. Not that I'm saying it's a thriller, but it's just, like, I was thrilled the whole time. I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. It totally had me in the eating out of the palm of its hand the whole time. It was very effective in kind of, like, duping you and controlling the narrative in a way that, like, you can't quite figure out where it's going to go. And I feel like I'm one to always see the next thing coming and – you know, to some, that's a superpower. To me, it's a it's a huge thing that I hate about myself. Like, I don't want to spoil things before they're they're cooked, um, but I do all the time. Um, and I I could not have spoiled this for myself because I truly did not see things coming. Um, I mean, it is chock full of incredible, incredible, incredible performances. Um, I think like what I'm seeing so many people attack this movie for is they're saying, like, oh, Emerald Fennel, she's just doing shock value, again, dismissing the fact that she runs in circles similar to these wealthy people and, you know, can't, she can't, why is she making a movie about them? And also this whole, like, um, you know, this is such a poor excuse for a class, you know, a class conversation. Uh, to that, I say, yeah, it's not doing anything inventive. There's clear parallels between this and the talented Mr. Ripley slash Purple Noon or Purple Noon. There are clear connections between this and Parasite. Just the which, Tom Ripley patricizes. Yeah, you know, the there's clear, you know, connections between this and Parasite because Parasite basically 
brought a class conversation back in a new way and then everybody wanted to talk about class again. I feel like there are a zillion movies and stories throughout all of time, basically, that you can clearly draw a connection from. But I don't think that just because those exist and those are good in their own right, like other, like obviously Parasite is incredible. Everybody knows that it's absolutely incredible. That does not make this bad because it is doing a Parasite thing. I think that it can exist independently and be a conglomeration of a lot of different things and still be effective at being it. And I think that that's what people are not for me, like, I feel like people are being way too hard about, like, like, do we, how do I say this? Do we hate on, um, Stranger Things for being a, a conglomeration of a bunch of 80s movies? I do. But, I, you know, <laughs> I, I feel like some people go, oh my god, how amazing is it that it's, you know, that. I think that for me, it's like Promising Young Woman was talking about she was saying the quiet part out loud. She was talking about things that we didn't dare to talk about, really, and should have been. And this is a topic that's been covered. And I think that that's part of people's disappointment is I think people found her really shocking and willing to say things that no one else was saying. And this, it's like, well, yeah, we've been through that. And it's also coming from someone who, <clears throat> you know, is a part of these circles. What do we hear that she's Andrew Lloyd Webber's goddaughter or something or yeah to me that, it is i mean that's that's indefensible i'm sorry you can't that's that's embarrassing because it's andrew lloyd webber she could be related to any other rich person that is bad um but like she's doing this she's doing it obviously on purpose she's setting it in 2006 she's setting it in a juicy couture world she's setting it in uh england like she's doing all of these things on purpose because not only is that the story that she knows, but also that is the most clear way to get a lot of these themes across. And I think because she's being quote-unquote obvious about it, I think people feel let down to a certain extent. I don't want to speak for those people, but that's, that's the vibe that I'm getting. To me, it feels like a fresh take on a highly oversaturated topic. Yeah. And that, for a lot of people, is crime enough. To me, I don't know. I Again, I think that topics can be – has the class topic been talked about a lot? Yes, a lot. Again, we have had a boom since Parasite talking about class in a very similar way. It's a very oversaturated market. Triangle of Sadness, Glass Onion. Uh, uh, what was the other one? I can't remember. There's been a lot. Um, there's been a lot. There's been a lot in the last couple years. I mean, there's been a lot. I am not the menu. The menu. You know, I'm not. I'm not gonna say that that's not true. The menu. Perfect example. I gave the menu five stars last year. I thought the menu was brilliant. I thought it was a fresh take on an oversaturated market. I think that this is the same thing. I, if you can convince me that this story is worth being told, I'll sit through the same spiel again. That's just my opinion. I know other people are looking for more, and that's fine, but I that is just how I feel. 
we see movies come out all the time that are homages and we don't think twice about them. Again, Stranger Things is an homage to the 80s. Wes Craven, everything he does is an homage. You know, like, all you have these people who build brands on, on being homage makers um, and suddenly it's a crime when she does it. I, I don't know. I, I feel like that's a little unfair. Um, and I think that there's a lot of talent here. I think there's again, masterful performances. I think there are some career-defining performances here. For me, I feel like this is a career-defining performance for Jacob Elordi, who I feel like very torn on his Elvis performance. I feel like my gut reaction was just like, yeah, what's going on? But then I have to go like, well, Lisa Marie, or not Lisa Marie, uh, Priscilla, you know, like, fond over the performance, like, even more so than Austin Butler. So I go like, I mean, she's the final judge, kind of. Um, Whatever, but for me, like this is a career-defining performance for for Jacob Elordi. I mean, Rosamund Pike hasn't done anything in ten years, and that's and crazy. She's Gone Girl, so good here. Gone Girl should have made her the biggest star ever, and it did for like three months, and that was it. And then you go like, she's really good, and she should be in more shit. Yeah, I think that she's brilliant. I think that you know she deserves so much more more than she gets she's she gets so many great lines here she gets so many great she's moments very funny she gets so many great moments to play you realize that her range as an actress and her ability to play within that range even when confined in a very specific scene and and feeling is limitless i mean she plays so much and it is it is really wonderful to watch um, so I feel like that's really talented. I, we don't even need to get into the cinematography. I'm beating a dead horse by saying the cinematography is unbelievably beautiful and completely masterful. Every, this is the praise that it's getting across the board. Um, so yeah, I just feel like, I don't know. There are some other performances I want to shout out. I think that Richard E. Grant, like, doesn't speak for most of the movie. He goes like, ooh, huh, hmm, for like the first hour and a half. And then he gets a scene where you're like... And he was the perfect choice. Yes. Um, there is a moment, which, again, I'm not going to spoil every, anything, but there is a moment where it is just, like, a three-second shot of just his face, and, like, your heart, like, goes into your stomach. It is unbelievable how much feeling he conveys in just that one shot. He plays um, uh, Jacob Lordy's father. Carrie Mulligan, I love. I think I'm I'm one of her biggest fans. She's in this movie for three seconds, and it seemed like she just did she it. Did a favor for Emerald Fennel. <laughs> I don't. I wasn't crazy about it. She was it's giving Helena Bonham, Bonham Carter. I like, was thinking she's channeling Elizabeth Banks from The Hunger Games. Oh, well, that's funny too. Um, yeah, she's she's you know very briefly in this, but she's and, very funny in it. And and Barry. I think is great for a lot of it. We're going to talk about some of my problems with it in a second. But I think that he's <clears throat> he's very good at being very sad. Yeah. He's very sad in The Banshees of Inishir, and he's very bizarrely sad in, in The Killing of Sacred Deer. He's, he's good at having sad eyes and being sad, and he does that for a lot of this, partially because he's puppy-dogging it. He's, he's playing. He a tired face. Right. <laughs> that but, man is a tired but he plays it well. Yeah, I've never seen Barry in anything else, I don't think. Um, so it's really tough for me to say. Obviously, I've heard of his performances in other movies, and he's a well-celebrated actor, but um, this is my first time really seeing him. And, yeah, he has, like, perfect puppy-dog eyes. He has perfect, you know, like, he has a very worn, tired face for his age just genetically um and that like really can with the right roles plays to his strengths a lot 
Um, I would say, yeah, he is very good at being sad, but I would also say he's very good at being captivating, too. There were moments where I go, like, I am deeply attracted to this man, and I am not. All right. Uh, Anyway. (laughs) Anyway, I have some issues. One is you said you can never guess where this is going to go, and that is true to a certain degree. However, and this is not your fault, it's very talented, Mr. Ripley, and there's part of that where you go like, well, there's only one way it can go because it's so clearly doing this. That's fine. I guess I had not heard that comparison prior to seeing it, so it felt like a shock to me. If, if I would not, even if I hadn't heard it called the untalented Mr. Ripley, like I said, which I think is unfair, I, you, you can't miss it if you've seen that film. Um, and the voiceover stuff, I think really gives a lot away. I think it's really kind of showing its its cards there. I don't really know why it was deemed necessary. I feel like uh, all that's it didn't come around enough to be useful. In fact, really, all, it, it, when it came back after extended absence, I was like, "Oh, I get, I get what's happening," and that kind of felt like I knew something fifteen minutes before I should have. Yeah, I wouldn't say that I got there fifteen minutes before I should have. But I do think, like, the last, the very last scene, which everybody's talking about, which I'm not, I'm that, I'm leaving that scene out of it. I actually think that that's a really great, like, button on the movie, and I, and I, I totally love what she did there. But the last 15 minutes, other than that very last scene, um, she. Oh, you, you're talking about the tracking shot at the end? Yeah. That's great. Yeah, the track, I, I want to make sure, when I'm talking about the end of the movie, I'm not talking about, like, literally the last, like, one take tracking shot. Brilliant, love it. I think that that was so beautifully shot. It was so poignant. It got every message across. It tied it up the, into a perfect. The bow. ten minutes before that treats you like an idiot. It does, and and I will say that's why I got a four and a half for me. I feel like I I'm in again. Realistically, this is probably like a four point two five for me. But I decided to be generous with a four and a half because I really, really did enjoy myself, and I really, really did like um, appreciate it a lot and had a lot of fun watching it. Um, but you know, the reason that it's realistically a 4.25 for me is, yeah, those, those 15 minutes at the, at the end, I mean, it does, it shows you all of its cards in a way where you go like, oh, that would have been so much better if you had just put Easter eggs and then made people go watch it a million times. Also, also part, like half of those things I didn't know. Sure. The other half I already knew. And now you're showing me for a second time. Yeah. And she she very clearly has an endings problem. Promising young woman has a problem with its ending that uh, you you just can't miss. This movie has an endings problem. Other than the tracking shot. Other than <laughs> other than the final shot, but that's not even wrapping up the story. That's just its own thing. Um, she does not know how to end movies up until this point, and so like I will defend a lot of stuff. What I simply cannot defend is the fact that I was armed and ready and yes maybe i had my rating figured out before the last 10 minutes of the movie sue me okay i was armed and ready to give this movie four stars and then it cut to barry's computer screen in the cafe (laughs) and that single that was awful frame that was knocked it at a time tag yourself on milk and cookies (laughs) it 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 digged it an entire half star. It is a two hour and ten minute movie, and one second of it ruined <laughs> like a good chunk of it for me. That was that was fucking outrageous. That was capital B bad. Like I have to, <laughs> if I ever got 
like up close and personal with Emerald Fennel, I I think I give her a little pop across the face. And like I don't <laughs> I don't think that that's like at some point you have to be like that can't be self aware because that's not funny. Like yeah. that doesn't. It's not even funny in a Y two K way. No, it's just a bad. It would have been funnier if it had been like AIM. And he's just like, I don't even, I don't even know. Literally anything. Literally, they didn't even have to show the computer. I didn't give a shit what was on the computer. It didn't yeah. matter. He could have been like looking for an apartment, or he could have been like matter. whatever. Yeah, yeah, it didn't matter at all. It, it I, we so can't, bad. we can't say what it is because you have to see it for yourself. But oh my god, I, I laughed out loud in the theater. I think that my laughter told other people it was okay to laugh because other, I heard other people be like, yeah, that's fucking stupid. And it is. It really. And I was just like that. That is so, um, such a great summary of the entire ending that it's just so messy and shows you everything. And you go like, the first two hours, this was so good and it had such good moments and a lot of it works really well. And part of that's because she casts really great actors and she just kind of lets them do their shit and that's great. And then it's just like, um, all that shit you already figured out. Well, I'm going to tell you anyway. Yeah, ambiguity really would have worked in her favor. I am not I I am truly not a huge fan of the like oh this movie doesn't have an ending or like oh what I, like I I think that that's actually really annoying and grating. Like I think like we sometimes as I think sometimes filmmakers just like go, "Ooh, I know what's edgy. I won't make it end. I won't give a satisfying ending. People will wonder. I think that that's, like, really annoying, like, 90% of the time. This is a movie that, like, essentially built built itself to not have an ending and, like, prepares you for it and then gives you an ending and treats you like a five-year-old and you go, like, wait, huh? Like, if it had just ended 15 minutes earlier, it's still – and you had the final shot, you still would have gotten everything you needed to know. And it's so egregious that I can kind of, at that point, almost see some of the backwards mapping of like, well, she treats me like an idiot. Does that mean that she thinks that I'm an idiot? Does that mean that she thinks that poor people are idiots? I don't agree with that thought process. But I I got to the point where I was like, oh, I can see why people think this now. And it's only based on like a three-minute montage. The thing is, the rest of the movie has built up enough goodwill, I think. That it, it didn't ruin it for me, but it was definitely like, oh, she's got – she's I'm going to go into her future movies, M. Night Shyamalami, where you go, how is this guy going to finish this? Because he's got a problem with his ending. And for Shyamalan, it's twists, right? For her, it's can she just finish this story without treating me like an idiot? I'm going to now have the expectation going into her work. Maybe I shouldn't, but she hasn't shown me otherwise up until this point. She makes the first 95% movies so, so good, and then it just falls off. This one, the 95% is totally worth it. You should see it. It's one of my favorite movies of the year, and I just really wish it didn't have like three minutes in it. Yeah, I wish there was like an anti-director's cut. (laughs) Like someone else finished the movie. (laughs) Where's the Miramax cut? Um, Yeah, no, I, I hear you. So it's... It's very funny. There are things that you told me I wasn't allowed to laugh at that I still found funny. It's very dark. I think it's very a, rich thematically. Very rich thematically. I think it's a good mystery to a certain degree. At a certain point, you said, figure like, it I, out. That's what I was saying. Like I was thrilled. Like I, I don't want to call it a thriller because that that makes it seem 
like horror esque in some way. But I was thrilled in the sense that there were twists and turns. It is kind of a mystery. It does have that kind of eerie build and unsettling vibe to it. Rosamund Pike gets something to do, which is so great. I will watch Carrie Mulligan do anything, but it's got its issues. Um, I still liked it regardless. We're going to talk about it probably again on our top 10 favorite movies of the year. In fact, I know that we will because it's going to be on both of our lists. I would say I don't know how good of a movie it is, but it will be very rewatchable. I, I can already tell that I'm going to go back to this and back to this and keep being like, what is it about that moment or what is it about this performance? Because there are really good parts of it. Yeah, I was, as soon as it finished, I went like, oh, that's a movie that now I want to experience as someone who knows all the twists. Yeah. Like, how does that build? I, one of my very good friends who, we have very similar tastes, uh, and I always, like, look towards his reviews on anything to kind of, like, set myself up, uh, set my expectations up. He was like, oh, I love this so much more on the second watch, and I thought that that was interesting, um, and I didn't understand that at the time, but now I do, and I go like, oh, maybe, I don't, I, I would actually argue I think I would not like it as much on the second watch, but I feel like there's something additional to take away on a second watch. I, I hear you. I think that I'm going to be... I might like the overall movie less. I can already tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to watch it again, and it's going to start with the voiceover. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go, this voiceover sucks. Well, okay. <laughs> and this voiceover gives away the fucking movie. And then know, and I... that's going to piss me off. And then I'm going to go like, but I like that movie. I like that movie. I like that performance. I like that scene. I like the fact that they filmed this in a mansion over the summer. Like, that's awesome. I like that song choice. And then it's going to piss me off again at the end. <laughs> I actually thought, I mean, maybe this is an unpopular opinion. I thought that the narration at the beginning of the movie was really strong, and I felt like it set the stage It's going to be worse well. on a rewatch. Yes. But I, I do feel like they – I understand what she was trying to do in trying to make the narration, like, exist throughout the movie so that it doesn't just, like, come and go randomly. I understand that there's issues in that. But I do feel like she could have gotten away with – a narration just in like the first 10 minutes and then never coming back to it. And that way you have to go back to it. Or only coming back to it when we see the narration. Exactly. I don't think she needed as much narration as she did, but I do think that the narration was a strong choice had it been used more tactfully. Yeah, I hear you. I do. I hear you. Okay. That was a fun episode. Five movies and one of our longer episodes. We're at an hour 10, so we got to wrap it. Um, but thank you for doing this with me. This was fun. I like talking about some 2012 stuff, some new stuff. Uh, we do a little bit of everything over at FeaturePresentationVideo.com. This podcast, all of our other podcasts, all the reviews that we write, everything. You should go check it out. Head over there. Uh, we do free stuff five days a week. You can put your email address in. We'll just send you everything that we do for free every morning. Uh, no ads, no paywall, uh, nothing. Just free stuff five days a week, including this podcast, which you can rate and review Leave us a nice five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. Hit that subscribe button so it comes directly to your ears. There's no schedule on this show, so, you know, you might want to hit that subscribe button or subscribe to us on our website where we do have a schedule of free stuff five days a week. You can find me, sorry I was yawning, you can find me on Letterboxd at Taylor Malone. You can find me on X at Talone. You can find me at Patrick J. Regal. Everywhere you find people online, the best place to find us is our website, FeaturePresentationVideo.com. Uh, Thanks for listening, folks. Thanks for hanging out with us, and we will see you next time.